Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to another season of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-2, Muslims and Mongols. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. A Mongol chieftain named Temujin unites the various Mongol clans and takes on the title Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan proceeds to defeat two major Chinese dynasties, the Shishia and the Jin dynasty. Several smaller kingdoms in the region voluntarily submit to this new rising power. The Mongols move west, defeat the Karakatai kingdom, and now they share a border with a Muslim state. And with that, let's discuss the Mongol expansion into the Muslim lands. Why was the Mongol military so unbeatable? The Mongols mostly fought on horseback and had very few infantry or foot soldiers. Boys learned to ride at a young age, so by the time they were ready for the military, they were already excellent horsemen. And all the Mongol men between the ages of 14 and 60 had to serve in the military. The Mongol use of horses made their army very fast and very mobile. The Mongol army could cover up to 100 miles a day. No other army would be able to match that speed until World War II. This speed allowed the Mongols to scout out any area they were in for miles around, helping to protect them from ambush or getting caught by surprise. The horse the Mongols used was the Mongolian horse. This horse breed is fairly small as horses go and stocky, but they are very tough horses and can survive on very little food. As far as armor was concerned, the Mongols did not really use any. The Mongols relied on speed and mobility, and armor would only slow them down. Mongol soldiers were excellent archers. Their weapon of choice was the compound bow. The compound bow was very light, but also very accurate with a long range. A typical Mongol soldier carried up to 60 arrows, each one tipped with bone or steel arrowheads. Using the compound bow, these arrows could pierce through chain mail from over 1,000 feet away. So, the Mongols were excellent horsemen as well as excellent archers. They could shoot their arrows in any direction at a rapid rate while riding at full speed. Their horses could be charging in one direction while the riders were shooting in the complete opposite direction and each shot would be accurate and deadly. Initially, The Mongol army was fairly medium-sized, at least by medieval standards. It was rare that the Mongol army fielded more than 10,000 soldiers. The Mongols did not use any sort of currency, so their soldiers were paid by splitting the plunder from their battles. Of course, higher-ranking soldiers and officers received a larger portion, but all fighters got something. This practice also explains why the Mongols had to keep fighting. 
The only way to pay their soldiers was to continuously battle and continuously take more plunder. This, of course, kept the warriors sharp and experienced, but it also meant the Mongols were always on the lookout for new lands to invade. The Mongols also successfully used terror and fear to their advantage. If a city tried to defy them, once it fell, the Mongols would show absolutely no mercy. Just about everyone in the city was killed, old and young, male and female. Prisoners of war were never ransomed. Most often, they would simply be executed immediately following the battle. POWs were often mutilated with parts of their body taken as trophies. But sometimes, the POWs were used as human shields. They would be forced to run ahead of the Mongol army and absorb the brunt of the enemy's arrow volleys. Whenever the Mongols destroyed a city, they always let a few people live. These survivors would flee to the neighboring cities and spread the terrible news of the Mongol destruction. This was usually enough to convince the next city to submit to the Mongols without a fight. Those cities that did submit peacefully were usually treated fairly and dealt with easily. As we mentioned in the previous episode, the Mongols often recruited some of the enemy's leadership over to their side. This helped the Mongols learn their opponents' customs and society. The Mongols and the Muslims As mentioned in the previous episode, the Mongols defeated the Karakatai Empire in 1218. With this victory, the Mongol domain now bordered the Muslim Khwarezmian Empire. This was a Sunni Muslim empire covering much of what is now Afghanistan, Iran, and parts of the Caucasus. Much of the Khwarezmian Empire was made up of territory that had once been part of the Seljuk Turk Empire. Genghis Khan sent a caravan to the Khwarezmian Empire seeking trade and commerce. After all, the Mongols now controlled much of the Silk Road. However, one of the local Khwarezmian governors suspected the Mongol caravan was conducting espionage and had them arrested. When Genghis Khan found out, he sent an emissary to meet with the emperor and get his people released. And that's where the Khwarezmian emperor, Shah Alauddin Muhammad II, committed a heinous violation. The emperor not only refused to free the Mongol caravan, he also executed Genghis Khan's emissary. This was a grievous violation of diplomatic norms. Just like today, emissaries, diplomats, and international missions are supposed to have diplomatic immunity. This foolish, evil act by the Khwarezmian emperor unleashed hell on his people and the Muslim world. Genghis Khan gathered his army and marched on the Khwarezmian Empire with the largest military force the Mongols had ever assembled up to that time. In 1220, three columns of Mongol soldiers numbering over 100,000 
began the invasion of the Khwarezmian Empire. As the Mongols descended, Shah Alauddin Muhammad led his army out to meet them. But as we mentioned earlier, the Mongol army was very fast and very mobile. Rather than fight them head on, the Mongols rode 300 miles out of the way, avoiding the Khwarezmian military. Then they circled around and began attacking the lightly defended cities in the empire's interior. The Khwarezmians had called up most of the soldiers in the empire to join the main military, leaving the interior largely unprotected and they were not fast enough to respond to the Mongols' sudden shifting of the front lines. The first city to fall was Otrar in modern southern Kazakhstan. The Mongols killed or enslaved the entire population of Otrar, then burned the city to the ground. Next was Bukhara in modern-day Uzbekistan. The Mongols massacred Bukhara's defenders and enslaved most of the city. Bukhara was a major city on the Silk Road, and that may be why it did not suffer the same devastation as Otrar. Then the Mongols moved on to the capital, Samarkand, in eastern Uzbekistan. The defenders of Samarkand were quickly defeated. Shah Alauddin Muhammad and his army rushed back to relieve the city, but were forced to retreat twice in the face of the Mongol onslaught. Eventually, Samarkand fell and the Mongols killed or enslaved nearly everyone in the city. They forced many of the young Muslim men to join their military. Anyone with useful skills like craftsmen, artisans, or tradesmen were captured and enslaved by the Mongols to be used in the continued development of their empire. With his capital city ruined and in Mongol hands, Shah Alauddin Muhammad fled eastward towards Persia. Genghis Khan sent 20,000 soldiers after him. There's an interesting story about the Khwarezmian city of Gordagani in northern Turkmenistan. The Mongols attacked and besieged the city, eventually defeating its garrison. But then two of Genghis Khan's sons disagreed on how to deal with the city. One of his sons, named Chogatai, wanted to destroy the city, which was the Mongol custom. The other son, named Jochi, wanted to negotiate and spare the city. Finally, Genghis Khan sent his other son, Ogadai, to arbitrate between them. Ogadai wound up deciding in favor of Chogatai, and the city was destroyed. After this, the other son, Jochi, who had wanted to negotiate, began to withdraw from the rest of his family. Here's where it gets interesting. Jochi's son, Burke Khan, would wind up becoming one of the first of Genghis Khan's descendants to accept Islam. Burke Khan would also become the first Muslim ruler of the Golden Horde. We'll explain the Golden Horde later in this episode. As for the Khwarezmian Empire, the Mongols completely wiped it out within three years. With this conquest, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and most of Afghanistan and Iran became part of the Mongol Empire. 
it is estimated the Mongols killed over 1 million people in the Khwarezmian Empire. The Mongols then began an invasion of the Indian subcontinent in 1221. They invaded the Kashmir and Punjab regions of Pakistan and India, bringing them into contact with the Delhi Sultanates. But the Mongols didn't stay in India very long. They eventually withdrew from the subcontinent after causing extensive damage. It was now 1225 and the Mongol Empire was the largest in the world. The following year, the Shishia Kingdom in central China allied with the Jin Dynasty in eastern China to revolt against Mongol rule. We mentioned both of these states in the previous episode. Genghis Khan led his army south out of Mongolia to confront the rebels. However, Genghis Khan died within a week of his departure in August 1227 and the campaign was put on hold. Genghis Khan had chosen his son, Ogadai, to be his successor. Two years later, in 1229, the Mongol Tribal Council confirmed Ogadai as the new Great Khan. With this confirmation, Ogadai picked up where his father left off and continued the campaign to put down the rebellion in China. Ogadai was not the military genius his father was, but he was wise enough to let his more experienced generals handle most of the empire's military affairs. By 1234, the Mongols had again defeated the Shishia and the Jin, bringing much of northeastern China and Korea into their domain. The following year, in 1235, Ogadai began building a new capital called Karakoram in northwest Mongolia. Then Ogadai ordered an invasion of the southern Song dynasty in eastern China. The Mongol Invasion of Europe Ogadai led this campaign into China himself. Meanwhile, his generals out west continued pushing into Eurasia. From Kazakhstan, the Mongols entered southern Russia. In 1236, they attacked the lands of Volga, Bulgaria, just north of the Caspian Sea. We discussed Volga, Bulgaria in our bonus episodes about the Vikings. From there, the Mongols then went into Kievan Rus territory, which is centered around what is now the city of Moscow. By 1240, the Mongols had captured Ukraine, and within a year, they were moving against Hungary and Romania. The Mongols then swept south through the Balkan areas of Croatia, Bosnia, and Bulgaria. Around this same time period, the Mongols also invaded the Caucasus region, conquering Armenia and Georgia. Ogadai wanted to continue the push into Western Europe and invade the lands of France, Italy, and Spain. However, he died in 1241 at the age of 56, and those plans came to an abrupt halt. The Mongol Succession Crisis when Ogadai Khan died, the Mongol Empire was at its greatest extent. Its territory stretched from Korea to the Balkans. Before his death, Ogadai had appointed his grandson, Shiramun, to succeed him as the Great Khan. 
However, Mongol politics was not that simple. The Mongol throne was not passed through automatic succession from father to son. Any candidate for the position of Great Khan would have to be approved by the tribal council. And since Sharamun was still very young, they would not accept him. Hence, the throne remained empty. One of Ogadai's wives, named Torajin Khatun, maneuvered to get her son, Guyuk, elected as the Great Khan. While the tribal council considered his nomination, Torajin acted as the young man's regent and de facto ruler. This situation lasted for five years until Guyuk reached the age of majority. But even when Guyuk came of age, his final approval as Great Khan was opposed by Batu Khan, ruler of the Golden Horde. We mentioned the Golden Horde earlier, so now would be a good time to explain it. With the empire so large, it was impossible to effectively rule it from the capital, Karakorum, all the way in Mongolia. Therefore, it was divided up into four large khanates, or mini-empires, within the Mongol Empire. The Golden Horde was one of these khanates. We'll discuss the khanates in more detail in episode 4 of this series. So, Batu Khan opposed Guyuk, which held up his election as the Great Khan. This delay allowed Temuje, another of Genghis Khan's sons, to assert his right to the throne as well. Now, there were three people vying for the throne, Guyuk Khan, Batu Khan, and Temuje Khan. Finally, to prevent a civil war from tearing the empire apart, the tribal council confirmed Guyuk as the Great Khan in 1246. However, Guyuk Khan was a very sick man, and an alcoholic, and a tyrant. He ordered the execution of Temuje and might have even had his mother poisoned. Guyuk Khan then ordered Batu Khan to present himself at the capital, Karakorum, in Mongolia. Remember, Batu Khan was the ruler of the Golden Horde. And the Golden Horde was a khanate, so it was basically a mini-empire within an empire. But just because it was smaller than the entire Mongol Empire, that does not mean it was actually small. And Batu Khan was far from weak. Batu Khan obeyed Guyuk's orders and headed for the capital, but he traveled with his army right behind him. When Guyuk Khan heard Batu Khan was approaching with an army, Guyuk went out to meet him with his army. However, Guyuk Khan died along the way, thus averting a civil war. For now. Guyuk's death brought on yet another succession crisis. Now, the two primary candidates for Great Khan were Batu Khan and Monke Khan, another one of Genghis Khan's grandsons. Ultimately, the two men agreed to rule the empire together. Nonetheless, Monke Khan was selected as the Great Khan in 1251, which by this time was more or less becoming a ceremonial position. Batu Khan and the rulers of the other Khanates would operate semi-independently going forward. 
The Conquests of Monke Khan As soon as he became the Great Khan, Monke Khan got rid of all of his potential rivals. He ordered the execution of 300 people from various noble families that had opposed his election. Then he confiscated their lands and their wealth. Monke Khan also continued to push the empire's expansion. In 1253, his top general, Kublai Khan, marched south into what is now the Yunnan province of China. The Mongols then invaded Tibet and went back into India. Also in 1253, the Mongols continued their push into the Muslim lands to the west. Monke Khan's brother, Hulegu Khan, besieged the Ismailis of Alamut in what is now Iran. We discussed this many years ago in some of the early episodes of the Islamic History Podcast. One of our first series was about the Ismailis and their foot soldiers slash hitmen called Hashhashin or assassins in English. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from a book called The Assassins of Alamut by Anthony Campbell. This was one of the books I used to research the Assassin series. This passage discusses the surrender of Shah, the Nazari Ismaili Imam, and the Mongol destruction of his castles. The castle was very strong and could have held out almost indefinitely. However, Khordashah was under pressure from the non-Ismaili scholars at Maimundis to surrender. The Mongols bombarded the castle with mangonels built with trees from timber planted there by the Nazares themselves. Khordashah prevaricated desperately for a final fortnight, but at last he sent down a negotiating party. Next day, he came down himself. The Mongols then started demolishing the capital, though first they had to dispose of a devoted band of Nazaris who refused to surrender. This took four days. Khordashah was treated well to start with, for the Mongols needed him to persuade the rest of the Nazari fortresses to surrender. Not all of them did so at first, evidently supposing that Khordashah's orders were a ruse and not intended to be obeyed. Gurdukhu, Alamut, and Lamassar held out. After a few days, the Alamut garrison changed its mind. They were allowed three days to remove their belongings, and then the Mongols moved in to destroy the buildings, even Hulegu himself climbing up to take a look. So great was the strength of the fortifications that the soldiers' task proved very hard. Picks were useless, and the men had to light fires on the roofs. The Ismailis of Alamut were defeated in 1256 and the Mongols moved on to Baghdad. They wanted to capture the fertile regions of Mesopotamia, but that meant going through Baghdad first. Monke Khan, the Great Khan, instructed his brother Hulegu Khan, leader of the Ilkhanate, to capture the region. Like the Golden Horde, the Ilkhanate was one of those many empires within the Mongol Empire. Monke Khan also instructed his brother to leave the caliph in Baghdad on his throne. Basically, Hulegu Khan was to turn the Abbasid caliph into a vassal. Bear in mind, 
the authority of the Abbasid Caliph at this time was very minimal. His effective rule did not go much further than Baghdad itself. The Caliph was still recognized as the spiritual leader of the Muslim world, but the Caliph was not the political leader of the Muslim world. Hulegu Khan sent an emissary to Baghdad to present his demands to the Abbasid Caliph al-Mustasim. Caliph al-Mustasim unfortunately believed Baghdad was impenetrable and could never be conquered. Hence, he refused to surrender to the Mongols. When Hulegu Khan received the Caliph's response, he proceeded to march on Baghdad. In January 1258, the Mongols put the city of Baghdad under siege. In the next episode, we will discuss the Mongol siege and conquest of Baghdad. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, Open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-2. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Abdurrahman ibn Muhammad ibn al-Ash'ath led an army into Zabulistan, which is North Afghanistan. After a while, he wanted to make peace with the local Zunbils or the local Afghans during the winter in order to give him a chance to consolidate his holdings. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, however, ordered him to continue fighting, even though this would have been detrimental to their cause. This led Ibn al-Ash'ath and the Peacock Army, that was the name of the army that he led into Afghanistan, it led them to decide to rebel against Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and drive him from Iraq. Ibn al-Ash'ath led the Peacock Army from Afghanistan back towards Iraq, stopping in Persia, modern-day Iran, in order to drum up support. 
While he was in Persia, the rebellion against Hajjaj turns into a, a rebellion against Caliph Abdul Malik and the Umayyad regime. And with that, let's continue our story of the Peacock Army. So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, as we mentioned in the previous episode, is now well aware that the Peacock Army, led by Ibn Ashaf, is on their way to Iraq. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he wrote to Caliph Abdul Malik asking him for help against the Peacock Army. When Abdul Malik received Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's letter, he was very disturbed by this turn of events. But nonetheless, he began to send small detachments and contingents of Syrian troops to support Hajjaj ibn Yusuf against this rebellion. He would send Hajjaj soldiers in groups of 10 or 50 or 100, just small contingents here and there, slowly building up Hajjaj's forces. Meanwhile, while Caliph Abdul Malik was sending these troops, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wrote Abdul Malik daily, giving him updates on the Peacock Army's movements and how the battle was progressing. It was really more of a war now, how the war was progressing. As we also mentioned in the previous episode, Ibn Ashaf had invited Muhallab, the governor of Khurasan, to join him in this rebellion against Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Muhallab declined the offer, advised Ibn Ashaf not to go down this path, but then he also wrote Hajjaj ibn Yusuf warning him of what was happening. Muhallab also gave Hajjaj ibn Yusuf advice on how to deal with this rebellion. He had advised Hajjaj to allow the Peacock army to reach Kufa, allow them to enter the city, which would basically take the fight out of the men. Muhallab knew that one of the primary reasons the people were rebelling was because the soldiers were upset about being so far away from home for such long periods of time. But once they returned back to their homes in Kufa and Iraq, most of the men would not want to rebel at that time, thereby putting their family in danger. They would lay down their weapons and allow Hajjaj to uh, reassert his control over the situation. But as we mentioned before, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was very pessimistic. He was very cynical. He thought Muhallab was trying to pull a fast one or trying to gain some sort of advantage of the situation. And he completely ignored Muhallab's advice. So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he took his army and he relocated to Tustar, which is in modern-day Iran, about 120 miles north of Basra. So he completely ignored Muhallab's advice. Muhallab advised him to stay in Kufa and wait for the army to reach him there. Hajjaj, in his smart self, he went outside of Kufa, outside of Basra completely, 120 miles north. This was because Ibn Ashath was already in Persia. As we mentioned in the previous episode, he was traveling from Afghanistan to Iraq. He had to go through Persia. He stopped a couple of times in Persia to build up support. And so Hajjaj ibn Yusuf went to meet him in Persia before he could get to Iraq. So Hajjaj had relocated to Tustar in Iran, and he began to send uh, small cavalry contingents and some large cavalry contingents to go and fight Ibn Ashaf. And Ibn Ashaf, who was in charge of this large peacock army, we mentioned how well Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had supplied and decked out and fortified this army. They were also well experienced. They had been fighting for the past year or so in Afghanistan, which 
which was it was difficult now. So you can imagine how difficult it was back then. So this army was was well trained. They were they were battle hardened. They were experienced. They swept aside every single contingent that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf sent against them. 